This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. This is hard work. That's why all of our five areas of focus are so important and they overlap with one another because if you put together the right complement of services and you do the things that we outline in the publication, then I think you can be successful. And I think there's absolutely space for independent health systems to thrive across the United States. Hello and welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host, Trevor Duran, and joining me today is my colleague, Jeff Mosier, because he and I just authored a new briefing about the five most important considerations for hospitals that are trying to stay and thrive as independent hospitals. Jeff's already started using this framework with hospital leadership teams and boards, so I'm really excited to hear from him on what some of the conclusions of those conversations have been. But this is an update from work that Jeff led three years ago, really outlining all the biggest components that we felt were really important for hospitals trying to stay independent. Now, of course, we've added to that list and then we've reorganized it into five key groups. And the first, no surprise right now or historically for small rural hospitals is workforce. And I think it needs no further introduction. The second big consideration for staying independent is having a finger on the pulse of local consumers and a really tailored local approach to consumerism that also gets to understanding and being realistic about what the brand of the hospital and health system is locally and knowing and understanding that, measuring it, but also knowing that it has to be strong for you to be viable long-term. The third consideration is around infrastructure. You could broadly say this is the SG2 system of care. It's everything from technology care models, sites of care, but it's really about making sure you have a sufficient footprint to generate the volumes that are going to be necessary in any payment model to be successful. The fourth key consideration is management expertise. Again, I think one that doesn't require a ton of explanation. Tough to recruit physicians, tough to recruit folks who have really deep IT expertise, and it's tough to recruit hospital leaders who understand all the dynamics necessary to be successful as a small hospital in today's environment. And finally, the fifth big group of considerations is around financial stability, which is really, do you have diverse enough revenue streams? We talk about revenue diversification as a big industry trend. There's going to be a slimmer set of options for small community hospitals, but can you diversify your revenue streams enough to be flexible, nimble, and resilient as, face it, we don't even know what the next crisis is going to be in the healthcare industry, but I'm sure there's one right around the corner. With those five considerations in mind, Jeff, you've already started using this framework with hospital leadership teams and boards to do some prioritization exercises. What are a few of the considerations within this framework that are bubbling to the top as top priorities for hospitals trying to stay independent today? We're in such fluid times right now. The health systems that I meet with, probably 20 or so in just in the last six months, the conversations are difficult because it is hard to remain independent. And they always ask the question, is there room for an independent health system in the health ecosystem across the United States right now? 
The short answer is yes. That was call to action for us was to put a publication together to help organizations steer through these times back in 2018, pre-pandemic. And now things have gotten much more difficult for the organization. Workforce is absolutely top of mind for every health system in their quest to remain independent, to manage that as best they can. And we look at it from two different vantage points. One, of course, is the labor shortage. And I was with a board just over the weekend, and they're spending around a million dollars a month on traveler nurses. Pre-pandemic, they were holding steady at around less than $50,000 a month. Those of you who are listening that are associated with independent health systems, you know how tight the margins are. And in this particular organization, they'd be lucky if they made $2 million a year. Now they're spending $12 million a year just in truly unbudgeted expense around labor. So that's challenge number one. We talked about different things that they could do to retain staff. We've got some publications around that that you can reference. The second piece of that workforce that is as important, the alignment with the clinicians from the primary care to specialty care and all through the continuum of care, creating a strong network for an independent hospital so that your volumes don't out-migrate to your competitor in the larger metropolitan area 30, 45 miles away. That is critical and it's still surprising how much leakage occurs across the end. You know, there's a lot of things that can be done locally that end up out-migrating because of poor alignment and poor incentives or even just poor follow-up and management and accountability. That's critical when the workforce is looking at those two aspects. Yeah, Jeff. I mean, when you think about workforce in a small, often rural hospital, the combination of the historic factors that already made workforce tough and the current environment make a really challenging picture today and a scary future picture. And the hospitals that I've talked with recently are saying, we're not even thinking about prioritization of one-off solutions today that could lead to automation of a job or simplifying a care team from three team members to two plus some kind of algorithm or support. They're not even at that level of prioritization because they're thinking about big time care redesign and then the workforce that's going to be needed to support that because the workforce deficit today, the labor shortage today, and the future outlook are so grim that one-off solutions really aren't going to get us there. It's going to be about wholesale redesign. Absolutely. One of the other ones that we reached that you mentioned was around local consumerism. And one of the nuanced things that is really important in that discussion is the brand of a small independent health system and how much different that is to a large city. I live in Golden, Colorado. If I'm honest, I don't go to one of the providers here in town because of their name, uh, because of their signage. In a small community, I've had a lot of discussions with CEOs around this, and I think they universally agree that brand matters and it matters a lot in a small town. If you don't have a solid brand where the community doesn't see and understand what your purpose and your vision is as an organization serving their community, then they will go elsewhere. They won't connect with you. This is really important. In fact, I, I was meeting with a, um, uh, a health system in the Midwest earlier this year, and they're trying to expand their reach into another county, another zip code. What they found is their brand is the name of the town that they're currently in. It's really hard for them to expand out when they're touting 
the name of the town and the high school in that town. And so the high school in the other town is competing with that. And people don't want to go to that hospital because it represents that other town. They're rethinking their brand to repurpose it or reposition it so that it's more welcoming across those smaller communities. That's one example of why that matters. It matters not only in terms of keeping the patients local and getting all that market share that you should get in the local market, but it also matters as you start outreach and you start to move and grow and build your volumes because that's the name of the game is increasing those procedural volumes, increasing your ability to care for your community as well as the surrounding community where appropriate. Yeah, the teams I've worked with that are really strong knowing and understanding their local consumers have two things. One, they have a multitude of channels to learn from their local community. I mean, so many organizations, of course, have boards, some level of steering committee or a group of local community leaders, but you need a multitude of channels to learn from the community in addition to pretty traditional marketing avenues to build patient panels and get feedback from your consumers. And with all that in mind, a lot of the small hospital boards that I work with are homogenous. And when we think about a lot of what we've learned in the last couple of years around access challenges, challenges across not only ethnic groups, groups with chronic comorbidities, aging population differences across demographics, making sure that your board and the different channels you have to learn from the community are diverse is just going to lead to a diverse set of perspectives and a more well-rounded view of how to meet the needs of all the different segments in your community. Absolutely. One of the other areas that we've had quite a bit of feedback on, you mentioned it, Trevor, around information technology, information systems, and connecting your system of care. Recently, I was at a board retreat, and this is one of those things that has to be fluid. We know the right thing to do. We know we need to connect information across the continuum of care. However, we also know that it's really expensive and it's complicated. And right now probably isn't the best time to upgrade your system and ask all your clinical staff to learn a new system. These things tie together and timing matters. I was speaking to the CNO of this one organization and they were talking about what they needed to do and some of the frustration around not being able to share information across the continuum of care. She says to the CEO, don't you dare talk about changing our EHR because I will have a revolt. All my nurses will leave. There's some physicians in the room and not surprisingly, they said the same thing. We will leave. We will retire. Do not do this. From a strategic planning perspective, getting those things together, figuring out how to pay for it, budgeting for it, execution around this, there's some danger there that we need to be real cognizant of right now more than ever. One of the other things that we think about is contracting, payer mix erosion. I know, Trevor, you've got some examples around that. It comes up invariably in the conversations that we have is this idea of alternative revenue streams and finding something that can bolster your financial situation, especially now. We've been working with some organizations on brainstorming some ideas around that, things that kind of come to mind in the recent board retreat that I was helping to facilitate. They can't be all things to all people. They don't have all the services. So they're rationalizing. They're trying to get their head around what should we be doing and what should be appropriate for out migration. There are things that are appropriate to move out of the network. They were thinking about, are there easy ways to capture diagnostic revenue or ancillary revenue? 
in a program that we don't have. They used an example of a medical condition that they don't currently serve. And they said, well, maybe we can connect remotely via telemedicine with a provider and just staff our clinic with a nurse practitioner that helps shepherd that patient along. Instead of going out to the competing facility or the AMC or whomever, we're going to partner with them and we're going to keep the care local. So we get all the ancillary billing, we get all the diagnostic work, and we keep the patient connected to our local communities. It's not entirely an alternative revenue stream per se, but it's just thinking creatively about the services that you have. Can you bolster those services? My colleague, Henry Sock, for those of you that ran across him over the years, really stayed on top of technology for us in particular. That was one of his passions. And he said to me just before he retired, there's advancements in imaging that are so significant now that you can take an MRI portable. And the cost of entry for that is significantly lower than a facility. He had mentioned it was about $100,000 to buy a portable MRI machine. And we were just brainstorming about it. And it's like, what a great idea to take that out to the local college or the local high school and provide some neck or head or extremity workup right there on site. You can bill for it with the standard rate outpatient visit right now or procedure now. And that may change down the road, but right now it's pretty lucrative business. And you catch that patient right there and sign them into the follow-up activities that you need. You could put in your skilled nursing facility down the road, offer that service one day a week, two days a week, whatever it happens to be, and keep those patients in your network and provide that added service that's very convenient, very easy access for the patients. And I think the feedback will be pretty favorable. These are pretty new advances, so we'll keep an eye on them. But I'd say, why not be bullish on something like that? So Trevor, you've heard some things around payer mix but what types of things are you hearing out there? It's hard to have a strategic discussion with small community hospital, small independent hospital teams and not talk payer mix. Because in most cases, it's so overwhelmingly government payers that inevitably that just creates a narrower set of options when you're thinking about future revenue streams. And it just puts more pressure on the already growing reimbursement pressures that we see across the industry. And then you combine that with our forecast, the SG2 impact of change forecast that shows huge growth of inpatient length of stay, not necessarily volumes, but length of stay driven by medical admissions for the over 65 population. And all of a sudden that payer mix looks even scarier. But it also shows what I think is kind of a future view of what small community hospitals are going to have to prove they're really good at which is effectively managing medical admissions for older Medicare patients in a safe, cost-effective environment so that you can be kind of a back transfer location or so that bigger systems are putting the resources and the infrastructure in place to help you effectively manage patients and keep them local because most big tertiary hospitals are at capacity and ultimately face it. They would be thrilled if small community hospitals can keep lower acuity medical patients local because they'd love to backfill that capacity with surgical patients. And as hard as that financial picture is for that small community hospital, I think we have to accept that that's the reality. And so being good at that is going to be just a necessary competency rather than hoping you can fight enough to kind of tweak your payer mix. You sort of have to live with the payer mix you have. Let me link a couple things together too. We've been tracking the growth of chronic care and the challenges for any organization, let alone an independent health system, managing chronic conditions is one of our key pillars. 
within the five buckets that we laid out in the publication, managing chronic conditions. If you've got a solid brand that's well known in the community, that you are about the health of that community, and you've got a huge obesity problem, and you've aligned clinically with your providers across the system of care, what a great opportunity to start getting ahead of the chronic condition and managing obesity or or smoking rates in the community. And then just tying it back to the financials, joining up with a national ACO, because your market is probably not big enough to sustain your own accountable care organization. Perhaps you could participate in Medicare shared savings programs with a national provider or band together and build a CIN with some of the other independent providers in the state or in your geography. The tip of the spear here is the brand. Does the community recognize you as an advocate for their health? And if they do, then you have a unique opportunity to really tip the scales, no pun intended, to get them engaged. That was kind of pun intended. I apologize. This is hard work. That's why all of our five areas of focus are so important and they overlap with one another because if you put together the right complement of services and you do the things that we outline in the publication, then I think you can be successful. And I think there's absolutely space for independent health systems to thrive across the United States. Jeff, I couldn't agree more. Even in this landscape where health systems have less of an appetite to acquire small community hospitals that are struggling, and at the same time, we've seen increased independent rural hospital closures, that really hasn't changed our opinion that there's still both a role for independent community hospitals, but also absolutely a path for them to thrive. Thanks so much for walking through the framework, for sharing how others have zeroed in and prioritized within this framework. And thanks as always for joining SG2 Perspectives. Yeah, and we just dabbled into the publication. So if you have questions about it, you can download it on our site, reach out to Trevor, reach out to me, and we can talk through these things and help you along your way of staying fiercely independent. Well said. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes. And you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.